0: well good morning to each and every one of you it's good to see you here today and um, today uh, I get to stand before you wearing a slightly different hat usually you see me up here being the host of our traditions service and the song leader but today I get to wear the hat of preacher So let me remind you, if you came in, but you didn't pick up our communion elements that we'll be participating in later, you might want to just slip out and and grab those quickly. Now, some of you who are familiar with my past may be wondering a little bit uh, about me wearing this hat of preacher. Do I miss it? After... Over 30-some years of pastoring two other churches, and the answer is, not really. (laughs) I am quite content with the role that I fill here right now. It's uh, enjoyable to me to be able to host every Sunday service, and to lead the music, and to look after pastoral care side of things, as well as our primetime groups. So I am quite content with uh, doing that. And preaching once or twice a year is just fine with me. And in fact, if I did have to preach more, Russ would have to find more in the budget to pay me, and that's probably not going to happen either. So we'll just, we'll just leave it the way it is. <clears throat> and besides uh, preaching, preparing, at funerals, gives me enough opportunity uh, to stand in front of a, a group of people and preach and just hold on to that thought because I'm going to come back to that momentarily. Our whole summer series has been about addressing some of the scripture passages that we have heard misquoted, misinterpreted, or are not even simply found in the Bible. Pastor Dave pointed out some of them in his introduction to this series a few weeks back. Uh, For instance, God helps those who help themselves. Although not found in scripture, it often gets quoted like a Bible verse and by Christians themselves. Another one might be moderation in all things. Again, not in the Bible, although the word moderation does appear in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, let your moderation be known to all men. Now in newer translations, it gets uh, a different nuance. It becomes gentleness or forbearance. But moderation in all things is not a bad saying per se. It's even maybe a healthy practice. But it's just not in the Bible. A good example of a misquoted verse is one that Pastor Dave dealt with last week. Money is the root of all evil. Found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. But as we know from last week's message, the love of money is the root of all evil. Also, when it comes to verses being properly quoted, but maybe misunderstood or misinterpreted, well, that's kind of where I'm heading today in my message from Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll just give it, I'll call it the twist Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mel was back up here preaching, and he used this term in his message when he spoke on, God won't give us more than we can handle. Satan is the master of the twist. Starting way back in the Garden of Eden when he questioned Eve, has God really said And this whole misquoted series that we've been doing over the summer is really that question. Has God really said? And that was his question to Eve, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. He also tried this tactic with the Lord himself. As recorded in Matthew's gospel, the fourth chapter, the second temptation, if you may recall. Oh, I forgot. I got to do this. I'm a little out of practice today. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> the second temptation that uh, the Satan brought to Jesus, let me read it. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. To this Jesus replied, it is also written, you shall not twist the word of God. Well, he didn't say that actually, but he could have, I think. Uh, What Jesus said was to quote the scripture from, did I get ahead of myself? No, I didn't. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Other translations use the phrase, put the Lord your God to the test. You see, the twist is a tactical move on the devil's part to misrepresent God, as he did with Eve. And once he had her engaged in this thought, in this conversation, he then voiced an outright contradiction to what God had said by adding, you shall not surely die. The end result, nevertheless, was division. His strategy, divide and conquer. Not only were Adam and Eve now separated from God because of their disobedience to his command, they began to experience conflict in their relationship to each other. And this has been an ongoing issue amongst God's people for centuries. Let me give you a couple of examples. We read in the book of Acts how Paul and Barnabas were sharply divided over taking John Mark on another missionary journey. I'm not saying who might have been right and or wrong in this. I'm just saying it happens. And Paul and Barnabas split ways. They were divided. And sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to spark some disagreement amongst people. And for centuries, Christians have been divided into various camps of interpretation regarding Scripture. Another example of this might be when the Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church. During the Reformation, Martin Luther leading the charge, hoping to correct errors that he saw in the teachings of the church at that time. But instead, a division occurred, a break took place. The church became divided and Lutheranism was formed. All this to say that some misinterpretations of scripture can have a far-reaching impact upon people's lives. The specific text that I want to address is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. And if you think that sounds familiar, good, I'm glad. It should be familiar. It is a prophetic passage regarding Christ as the suffering servant. It often gets read and reflected upon on Good Friday, for it describes with marvelous accuracy the sufferings of Christ almost 800 years before it happened. But there's one particular verse in this passage, verse 5, which has one specific statement in it that I believe gets pulled out of the context of which it's written and used inappropriately the result of which I believe gives false hope or an expectation being built up in the hearts and minds of some of God's people. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says in the King James Version, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, instead of stripes, some of your translations might read wounds. But I see no reason to make any distinction between those two words. For when Jesus was disrobed and bared his back to the whip of the Roman soldiers, those stripes became wounds. And the words that Isaiah had just spoken earlier before this ring true that his appearance was marred more than any man. In my pastoral experience, I have dealt with individuals who have had this statement well memorized and misused it regularly. As you can imagine, my serving the same congregation for over 26 years, I did my share of funerals in that time. Now, fortunately, some of those were community people and not all church members, or there wouldn't be much of a church left in in Onaway. I'll just tell you that right now. But of course, over the years, a good number of those people from our church that did get sick ended up in hospital and they would have been put on our prayer concerns list. And sometimes they were, their names were there for many weeks. And this was Verna's situation. She had been diagnosed with cancer. And you can no doubt see where this is going. I don't remember the exact setting of which it was said to me, but one of our church members made a very bold prediction that he believed Verna was going to walk into our church yet again, that she would be healed because that is what God wanted for her, and that she would stand before our congregation and give testimony to that healing that would take place in her life. As Jesus demonstrated multiple times, God does heal. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And I believe that He continues to heal today. In Inverna's situation, she was healed, but not in the way it had been predicted. She never went home. She did not walk into our church building again. Rather, she was carried in. And you know how that took place. But don't the scriptures say by his stripes we are healed? Well, yes, they do. And I've been reminded by others over the years that the Bible promises healing for those who have enough faith. If faith can move mountains and it can heal the sick, even raise the dead. We just need to believe. But what happens to that faith when God doesn't come through the way we think he should? When he doesn't heal the way we claim he's supposed to. Is our faith strengthened? Is it encouraged? Or rather is it tested? And maybe even sometimes diminished. Claims that some people make on God and how they interpret Scripture actually box him in. Daryl asked the question when we started this service: How big is our God? How big do we see Him? How big do we live in accordance to what, how we see God? Some people's understanding of God turn Him into nothing more than a heavenly hotel bellboy. He's there only to do our bidding because that is how we read the covenant contract. Or has the devil inserted his twist to this particular statement to discourage people to create doubt or even to destroy a person's faith? Well, let's move on. Let's move on to the context of Isaiah 53 and verse 5. And let me say that I believe God is more concerned about our holiness than he is about our wholeness. God is more concerned, I believe, about our holiness than he is our wholeness. Which I think is borne out in the context of Isaiah 53. The immediate context of verse 5 actually begins in chapter 52 and, and verse 13, goes to the end of chapter 53, and this describes the suffering of Messiah. But beyond this, there is a slightly larger context dealing with the mission. Of the Messiah. And that starts in chapter 49 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 55. And all of this, of course, falls into the second half of Isaiah's prophecy, which is all about the servant of the Lord, chapters 40 to 66, in which, interestingly enough, right in the middle falls chapter 53. And although immediate context is key to correctly understanding any particular passage or phrase in a passage, we must keep in mind that the whole of God's word is the true context for understanding him. And so for a complete picture of who God is and what he says on any given subject, we need to use all of scripture to help us in our understanding. Now... Let me take us to the Word of God to read those verses which provide the immediate context starting in chapter 52 and verse 13. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his this visage his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men so he shall sprinkle many nations kings will shut their mouths at him for they had not been told for what they had not been told they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a shoot out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And we, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was, he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied but his knowledge by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities Isaiah's prophecy was written to God's people, the Israelites, who had rebelled against him, and the result of their rebellion was to be taken to exile. But God also said that he would not abandon them there. After their captivity was complete, they would return. They would rebuild their city with its walls and their temples for worship. They would once again work their land and restore its bountiful productivity. Most importantly, as a nation, they would find healing. They would experience wholeness in the process of this restoration by looking to God and to him alone for their redemption. What God had promised, what he had warned Solomon back in Second Chronicles chapter 7, would come to pass. His warning in verses 19 to 20 reads, But if you turn away, if you forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and you go and you serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. And that's exactly what came to pass in the exile. God allowed Babylon to come in against Jerusalem and to carry them away into captivity. But the promise that God had given Solomon as well in this same passage, chapter 7, verse 14, was if my people who are called by my name Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The Israelites, as they returned from exile to the promised land in the physical sense was a foreshadowing of the redemption that would also come in a spiritual realm a redemption that would be fully realized through one known as the suffering servant keep in mind prophetic passages like this are often multifaceted like a diamond and when viewed from different angles, they reveal another truth or aspect to their meaning. And so the overall theological message of this text of Isaiah 53 is that God's servant provides atonement through his own suffering. A suffering that would take place on behalf of other people. And thus we get The Suffering Servant title to this passage of Scripture. But from this comes a term that we use as substitutionary atonement. Meaning that someone else suffers, even dies on behalf of another. You see, prior to this, as seen in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was the blood of animals Sacrificed on an altar. Shed for the remission of personal as well as national sins. But the substitute for the purposes of man's atonement. Couldn't just be anything. Or anybody. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this all the blood of the bulls and the goats and all the animals that had been sacrificed was not sufficient. Even all put together, it wasn't the right type of sacrifice. For the purposes of mankind's atonement, the sacrifice had to be the one appointed and approved by God as his servant. And not only is this made clear through this servant passage or this segment of Isaiah, it also becomes absolutely clear in the writings of the New Testament. For it all unfolds in the life of Jesus. It all gets unpacked, so to speak, by the writers of the New Testament. In the light of the immediate context of verse 5, it seems clear that the healing Received by the wounds or the stripes of the suffering servant are spiritual in nature. They are a healing from sin and they point us to a restored holiness, a restored wholeness in one's relationship to God through the atonement provided by the death of the suffering servant. Another way that I can say this is The people of God who have been exiled in sin because of their disobedience need to be restored to a right relationship with him. And this is not only true for the Israelites that were in Babylon, but it is also true for us today. You see, God's suffering servant heals by rescuing us from captivity of sin through his atoning death on the cross which by faith we accept for our salvation our redemption and our reconciliation to God the Father and friends the elements of the Lord's table remind us of the price that had been paid for sin and the suffering of Jesus on the cross. His body wounded for us. Being pierced by thorns, nails, and a spear. His blood Shed for us because of the punishment of our sin that was laid upon him. As Paul tells us in his writings in the New Testament, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become in him. The righteousness of God so as we participate together in taking the bread and the cup may this be a reminder to us of God's desire for our holiness and the restoration of our fellowship with him let me pray to for us as we partake of these elements of the Lord's table our gracious God and Father in heaven, as we have pondered the words of scripture today from this passage of Isaiah 53, how, how naturally it leads us to that place of communion, of the participation in the elements of the Lord's Supper, that which Jesus celebrated with his disciples, what we call the Last Supper. And Father, as we think about His body being pierced and bruised for us, as His blood was shed on our behalf as an atone, atonement, God, we we thank you that you foresaw all these things. We thank you. That you foreshadowed all these things in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And we thank you that you fulfilled all these things in the New Testament through your servant, our Messiah, Jesus. As we partake of this bread and this cup, dear God, we thank you for Jesus, his life his death, and the resurrection that we look forward to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We read in Scripture, the Apostle Paul from the writings of his uh, letter to the Corinthian church, he said for I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that in the same night in which Jesus was betrayed he took bread and when he had broken it given thanks and broken it he gave it to his disciples and he said to them take and eat It was in the same manner after supper that Jesus took the cup and he gave it to his disciples again and he said, drink from this all of you for this cup represents the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. As often as you eat it and drink it together you proclaim my death until I come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we pause to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son to this earth. Thank you for the, the role that he fulfilled in complete obedience to your will that led him to the cross for our salvation, for our restoration. So that we might be declared righteous. Thank you for that demonstration of your love, for you so loved the world, you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For you did not send your Son into this world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. Today, Dear God, we rejoice in the salvation that you have provided for us through your son, Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen.